As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Manchester Derby. Rashford tries to rewrite the script before Foden's filibusters. Liverpool, Darwinism and the evolution of ponytailed strikers. Elsewhere, Newcastle and Fulham cruise, four of the bottom five lose and Forest has the gladiators referee with fighting their battles. Panellists ready? Listeners ready? This is the Totally Football Show. Mark Clattenburg is the nominal referee on rebooted UK TV show Gladiators, in case that last bit passed you by, listener. Welcome along. It's me, Matt Davis-Adams, filling in for Jimbo. I've just been watching the Manchester Derby in the company of Seb Stafford-Bloor. How are you doing, Seb? I'm doing well, Matt. How are you? Really good, thank you. Tim Spears is in the studio with us too. Tim, you've been on Gary Neville watch. Was that an enjoyable what hour and a half for you? What that was. Yeah. Yep. Concentrated my mind on Gary Neville. Tried to get into his, into his mind for an hour and a half, which was... Quite something. All right, we look forward to you uh, using the full moniker of Manchester United throughout that section of the podcast then. Uh, And also another supreme athlete joining us on the big screen. Hello, Jack Bitbrook. Hey, Matt. Uh, Right, I thought we'd start, instead of a highlight of the weekend, because there's been some absolute beauties this weekend, with a goal of the weekend. Uh, Seb, you're going to go rogue and not pick a Barclays Blast. I wanted to seem fashionable and cool alternatives. I've gone for Jamal Musiala's goal against Freiburg. His sort of twisty, turny, through a crowded penalty box, giving Bayern Munich what looked like an important lead at the time, didn't pan out that way. But brilliant goal. Also a reminder about how good a player he was. Um, he's kind of been lost in the uh, in the averageness of Bayern's season, so it was kind of nice to see him peak above the uh, above the pulpit a little bit there. And is that why I'm hearing that he's being linked with a return to England? <sighs> Long drawn out sigh. Yeah, maybe, maybe. That's how it works, isn't it? Player scores a good goal, goes into gossip column, probably going to join Manchester United within 24 hours, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that, and yeah. That, that definitely won't be an underwhelming move for him. No, that um, will pan out well. <laughs> Tim, did you have a goal of the weekend? Is this just best goal, aesthetically best? Whatever Favourite floated goal. your boat the most. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm going rogue uh, and veering outside the Premier League to Wimbledon via MK Dons. Oh, that was Which wonderful. was just an astonishing... An astonishing football moment, which I think the vast majority of us can really enjoy. This was Ronan Curtis with a 94th minute winner. Um, Wimbledon at home to MK Dons. Uh, the celebrations are wild. If you're gonna, if you haven't seen the clip and you want to, you've got to watch the one with the Wimbledon uh, club commentary on because the guy loses his voice. He's like, he's so hoarse. Brown now with the opportunity. Blesking up in the centre. Oh, and it's a chance for Curtis. It's a And the celebration's great. He, he whips his top off, picks up a ball boy. There's seven players in the crowd. It's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Wimbledon won visiting team nil, as I think it was. Uh... Yeah, I, I assume this is always done, but it's the first time I've noticed mm. it, that neither team referenced the other's name 
for the whole of their Twitter page, for the whole duration, it's just the visitors or the hosts. An extreme level of pettiness, which we can all get behind. Uh, yeah, it's got athletic long read written all over it, that one. I can look forward to, to somebody on this podcast writing it soon. Uh, Jack, are you going to bring us back into the mainstream with something from the Premier League? I certainly am. I, I'm kind of biased because I was there yesterday, but I loved Eberich Yezzi's free kick for Crystal Palace to put them 1-0 up. It wasn't too far out, maybe about 20 yards out, but what was so good about it was he kind of shaped as if he was going to go over the wall to Vicario's right and instead sort of whipped the ball to Vicario's left-hand side. Really, Vicario, I mean, it was it was the goalkeeper's side. He should have stopped it, but he looked a bit surprised by where Eze had put the ball and he, and he hit it so hard that Vicario couldn't transfer his weight back into the other direction. And yeah, really fantastic and clever, audacious bit of play. So I really like that. Yeah, weird wall as well. Uh, maybe we'll talk more about that later. Producer Charlie wanted to give a, a shout out to, to Wissa's overhead kick. I thought Suchek slightly beat it, but hey, uh, some of you might have thought that there were two better goals scored on Sunday. We'll get to the Manchester derby shortly, but let's rattle through the results. Saturday, a rare six three o'clock kickoffs. Uh, Forest losing one nil to Liverpool. Spurs beat Palace three one. Everton went down three one at home to West Ham. Newcastle put three past Wolves. Ad did Fulham against Brighton. Two two between Brentford and Chelsea. And in the late kickoff, Villa left it late to beat Luton by three goals to two. On Sunday, Burnley nil, Bournemouth two, and Manchester City three, Manchester United one. And that is where we're going to kick off. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Foden. Foden! The tale of the local lads settled by Phil Foden after Marcus Rashford had blasted United into an unlikely half-time lead. Erling Haaland spared his own blushes with a late third. How about this for a stat, Seb? Manchester United were unbeaten in 143 Premier League matches when leading at half-time, dating back to the 21st of September 2014 against Leicester. Um, I don't think anybody was particularly surprised even at the break that Manchester City would go on to win the game, it's fair to say. No, I, I slightly suspect you've made that stat up. I can't believe that. <laughs> is, that is that genuinely true? Copy and pasted from BBC Sport. Must be true mm. then. I, yeah, I, I think over the years, City clearly have developed this inevitability about them. And it's like watching one of those kind of two plus two uh, formulate film scripts where you, you kind of know how the story is going to end and, and what the, the kind of narrative arc is going to be. And, this is quite an interesting phenomenon. Whenever a goal like Marcus Rashford scored in a game, it sort of alters the perception of the game, even though it's an individual moment that lasts just a few seconds. And we were watching it together and it took probably about, I don't know, until maybe an hour where we all thought this is an absolute hammering in every sense other than the score. Um, but you never really thought that City weren't eventually going to find that one chance or manufacture something from which um, nothing could be done in big, bold, capital letters and an exclamation mark, which is probably... How you describe Foden's equaliser? Mm. Don't know. Don't know how you stop that. No, uh, or, nor the Rashford one, Tim, which was incongruous not just in terms of how the game went, but actually how Rashford's performance went because he kind of tailed off pretty significantly thereafter. But that was a moment to remember. Yeah, I think I think it was said on commentary that because um, Gareth Southgate was in the crowd and oh, that this will have done his England chances. You know, the world are good. But I completely disagree, to be honest, because yeah, apart from the goal. He did very little and got subbed off. But the goal itself, yeah, was marvellous and totally unexpected. Like It was a jaw-dropper, to be honest. You're expecting him to sort of curl it towards the far corner. It's it's out of nothing. But literally out of nothing, it was a long kick forward from, from Anana and the only shot on target they had for the whole for the whole game. <laughs> yeah, and Seb's right, it completely sort of skewed how you sort of how you were viewing the game because they'll want to look for so long. Um, but yeah, a good moment for him after a bit of criticism recently. Um, I think he says he's at his best when he's slagged off so he's, he's football's version of Johnny Bairstow because he comes out with his best goal in quite a while <laughs> um, Jack Manchester City had 27 shots in this game I'm not sure if we count that Erling Haaland one in the first half as a shot or or just a kind of existential crisis at that point are you, are you worried that City aren't going to get over the line or, or was it just delaying the inevitable it's weird, isn't it? Because I kind of felt two things at once watching the game. The first is that City were incredibly dominant. Like Man- Manchester United's inability to get out, to to do anything to stem the flow of City possession, 
was really striking. But at the same time, I didn't really think City were that good. I mean, I thought that, obviously, you know, you would expect Haaland to score that chance nine times out of ten. But I think that, certainly in the first half, I thought City could have done more to create more good chances other than that one brilliant Haaland chance. I thought even even in the, the second half, I mean, I think it, it did feel a bit more inevitable, maybe, but I don't... I've definitely seen City play better than that against Manchester United in games where they were similarly dominant. Um, you know, you think back to various Manchester derbies over the years where City have really torn United to pieces at the Etihad, not least last season, where they they found it much easier to, to score many goals. So I think inevitability is probably is probably about right, but I I did think that City could have been a bit more ruthless in the course of the game. Still waiting, Seb, for a, a sort of trademark City... Premier League performance, certainly in, in 2024. You're loath to criticise them when they've won 14, drawn one of their last 15, but they're not wowing us at the moment. They feel a little bit like a moments team, Matt. The kind of statistical story of the, the game is dominance, but if you look at how they actually won the game, it's kind of individual expression, which is probably, I don't know, I think it's fair because if, if, you, if, you, play, if you play in this game, you concede an early goal and you concede against a side, regardless of it being a derby, who previously have had success against you by sitting deep and countering. And, you know, United do have a bit of pace in those in forward areas. And also they had to protect, like Lindelof was a, a bit of an awkward fit at left back and isn't the quickest. So you have to kind of fall back to protect someone like that. Um, I think in that kind of situation, if that if a lesser team fails to find a way past that side, you're talking about, yeah, we don't have the individual abilities to, to kind of break through a, a, like a low block. So, it's a Spurs narrative, which, you know, brought me to tears, but you, it's one of those, isn't it? And so it's perfectly reasonable, really, that in those kind of moments, you do fall back onto a Phil Foden or I thought some of Kevin De Bruyne's delivery was great. Doku has, can't go over how quick Doku's feet are, to be honest. It's, imagine t- defending one-on-one against that, like that, that kind of that blur of motion. Very frightening. Um, but then, yeah, you, you, you kind of have to, you do have to lean into to, to your to your star players in those moments, and yeah, and goodness, how they did that. Foden in the running for for Player of the Year, do you think, Tim? Um, certainly up there. I think it's what's that, eighteen goals now for the season. Yeah, the way oh, that first goal is just Oof. unstoppable, really. And the second one, yeah, not quite as perfect to finish. And Anna prob- probably should have saved it, but it's it's his movement, his intelligence coming from either side of the pitch. Um, yeah, there there are not many. There's 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 normally an obvious player of the year at this time of year and he's probably creeping himself to be that man as for for city as a whole jack we might not have been blown away by by what they've been producing but they've got the win again and i guess in, in the next month or so we're, we're going to know aren't they whether they're going to pull away or not because they've got liverpool brighton arsenal and villa and they won't mind if they're being functional whilst getting the job done yeah it, it's interesting isn't it I, I i completely agree with what seb said a minute ago like city have not We've not really seen the best of City this season, I don't think. We've not really seen performances as good as what we have done in the previous few seasons. But they do have this kind of ominous momentum, I think, to them. And an ability to win games, even when we know that there's probably an extra level or two which they haven't really expanded into yet in terms of performances. It's unusual, obviously, being a three-way title race. I don't really think we've had one of those for 10 years since the the fantastic City-Liverpool-Chelsea title race of 13-14 and because of that I think we have to accept it it's going to go right that it's going to go very very late like I don't imagine I think it's plausible that one of the teams will drop off in the next let's say the next five games but I don't think that two out of three will play themselves out of it anytime soon so I I, I definitely think it will go deep into May but I um, instinctively I still I would still make Manchester City favourites just because not not just because of the experience though I think that matters but also just because I think they they will take the most points out of the run in. So they're a point behind Liverpool. They both played twenty seven. Uh, Arsenal are four back from City and uh, five from Liverpool. They play Sheffield United on Monday as we record. In terms of. United, Seb, it just feels a bit of a drudge, doesn't it, between now and the end of the season? I mean, they're still in with a chance of qualifying for the Champions League, but I'm not sure any of us feel that's actually going to be the case and that, that Eric Ten Hag's going to be the manager. It's always kind of drifting towards the end of the season. Yeah, I also feel like they've kind of sealed themselves off from those top five teams now. So you've got, obviously, the, the three at the top going for the title, 
Villa and Man United and Spurs battling for probably what's going to be one Champions League place, depending on what happens elsewhere in Europe with coefficients and what have you. I think the thing, and we, we spoke about this during the game, Matt, what really worries me about United is Marcus Rashford's goal is wonderful, but it was a little bit like optimised Harry Bassett football from the Wimbledon days, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's at the very top of that, but that is what happens. It's, and that was really it. There wasn't really much else. And uh, it's concerning. I wouldn't... Maybe it's just my age. I think you, you, you come over the years to, to expect something of Manchester United in that kind of game and a certain type of threat, even if it is on the counter. And today it was very, very limited. And we've talked about how we think the City team are a little bit underpowered, um, rely on their individual players. And yet still there isn't a... There wasn't really that much opposition um, and it didn't really kind of counter that sense of inevitability that we all seem to have felt throughout the match. And yeah, I was actually, I was actually quite impressed with them for, for some of the things they were doing because they've been, they've been so uncontrolled. They've felt uncontrollable recently. Like it's been carnage. Goals for and against so many in, their last, in the last few weeks. And um, this sort of reminded me of the Liverpool game in December where we went into it, everybody went into it, completely writing them off. They'd lost 7-0 there the year before. They were on a bad run and they got a 0-0 there. It felt similar for long parts of this game. It just shows you how far they've fallen, I guess, that they played to a plan and with a narrow defence and did it quite well for a decent chunk of the game. And that's that's the minimum you expect from any team, really, but you just haven't been getting that with United. But there was just no outball at all. And they were absolutely knackered. They were walking at the end. They were absolutely knackered. And the number of shots they can... I mean, obviously, it's City away, so you expect it, but it's now 175 shots conceded in nine matches which is 19 a game, one every five minutes. And that's obviously not sustainable at all. I thought also, Anana played really well today, mm. which was kind of the other worrying bit, because I, I know that the, he said have had not a kind of a, a typical first season for a goalkeeper um, year, but he's he's had obviously ups and downs. This was probably like a, a really aggressive shot-stopping performance, which I, I liked. I thought you saw the best of his, the better side, perhaps not the best of his distribution. Um, and, you know, that's not to be kind of confused with defending well. Like, he had to play that well. Otherwise, this wouldn't have probably needed that Phil Foden goal to to, to equalise. So, it's, yeah, it's uh, worrying. I think my issue with Manchester United is that clearly they're trying to play a counter-attacking game for, for games like this, and that's fine. And it's actually worked very well for them in the past. You know, if you remember, I think under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, they won two consecutive Premier League games at the Etihad playing this way. But I just don't think they're as good at it now as they were under Solskjaer. I just don't... I mean, admittedly, you know, back in that sort of Solskjaer era, and I'm talking about before they signed Cristiano Ronaldo, which really, I think, inhibited their ability to play that way. They had a better Rashford, I think, than they do than they do right now. They also had a much better Anthony Martial than they do right now. And they had Jadon Sancho as well at the point. So I think that they were able to play in a slightly different way. Whereas now, like, I just... The number of times in that game, they had what I thought could have been really good openings where they'd win the ball and they'd have, I don't know, a two-on-two or a three-on-three and they'd be attacking City's half. But they didn't really have enough in terms of the forward players to to take advantage of those opportunities. So I just don't think they're... In in many ways, a lot of what they've done this season has actually mirrored the kind of bits of the Solskjaer era. But I just don't think they're quite as good at executing that kind of counter-attacking game plan as they were a few years ago. Yeah, I, I, th- I think the injuries have got to be pointed out as well. I mean, yeah. they're down to the last senior senior defender today. Yeah. Or, or, well, Evans was the last one, and, and off he went. Um, and Hoyland was a, Hoyland was a miss. I think I think he certainly would. Have he's he's really. Rec- I, I'm actually really impressed by how he's managed to kind of quieten the noise around him, start to play well because it's it's been incessant from the moment he stepped on the pitch. He's had that obviously the price tag, which is really a Man United tax based on you know the way um, teams negotiate with him. But to kind of rebalance, to start scoring consistently in a side which isn't actually that well set up to create chances, I think it's enormously impressive from him. So, yeah, yeah, clearly a huge mess. Yeah, they'll hope to have him back next weekend. They host Everton, but maybe they'll have an eye on the FA Cup quarterfinal the week after against Liverpool City, as I say. Uh, home to Copenhagen in a tie that they've sort of half got one midweek. What did you learn about Gary Neville that you didn't know before then, Tim? Yeah, so after a bottle job, Gate last weekend. I mean, there's been so much attention on him, some of which is he's continued to shine on himself. You know, well, I wonder if the bottle job job would be a better <laughs> moniker for it. When, when, when this happened, because I, I, I missed this, when it happened, was the kind of reaction instantaneous? Was there a kind of, you can't say that? 
response? Um, a little bit. And then, obviously, uh, Pochettino was asked about it afterwards, right. and it sort of spiralled on social media. And Gary Lineker, I think, said it was a bit harsh. And he, he defended himself by saying it, it probably was a bit harsh. However, then, he then wanted to say he'd thought about it for some time because <laughs> Peter Drury was going on one of his monologues and then Carragher was saying something shouty. And, and then he, he was still, should I say it, should I say it? And then he did. So it was, it was a well thought through line. So yeah, I was sort of tasked with sigh analyzing his performance today <laughs> which you know we're, we're all guilty of sort of of regurgitating i guess in, in the media but but they do set the discourse right at the top and it's not like we can watch anyone else in this country you know it's 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 nevin Kara. and yeah i thought you know he's actually really good on man united games he's he's extremely balanced almost too balanced as in you know he's he's very careful not to overly praise man united but some of the stuff last weekend with uh for the final was just ridiculous you know singing Chelsea songs and saying he can't wait for Klopp to leave and you know it's just all very pantomime I think he's better than that and he was he was I thought he was fantastic today some of the analysis he gives is, is really excellent all right we'll look forward to reading that on The Athletic soon uh, also on Sunday Bournemouth won 2-0 at Burnley that's about that Really, isn't it? Although, Seb, I mean, they needed that win, Bournemouth, didn't they? First of 2024, it puts them on 31 points. They're, they're pretty much safe now. Any pressure that there was on Iriola isn't there anymore. 11 points clear of Luton, who are third bottom. So, yay, Bournemouth. I suppose if, if you were writing my stage directions, this would be looks at league table, <laughs> agrees with Matt Davis-Adams. You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, are you kind of staggered that Vincent Company still in a job yeah. I was thinking that today actually that yeah if, if if he if he was you know a lesser known manager and didn't have a, a career history behind him then I think everyone would be questioning you know why he's, why he's still there but because they did so well last season maybe maybe he's still got people are letting him off for that reason he's been linked with the Spurs job and talked about as a Man City successor you know a few months ago which is obviously you know but yeah I, I just really disappointed in Burnley um, although I'm careful what to say because this might get clipped up and put on TikTok um, <laughs> <laughs> Matt Davis Adams but um, yeah I, just, I don't know what they are I'm not going to miss them when they go uh, and they're really terrible at defending I mean Clivett's goal today in the first half the Burnley defenders were literally watching each other as the ball comes over the top saying who's going for this then which is crazy. It was, it was such a simple goal. And yeah, it's a really interesting dilemma for Burnley. What do they do now? Do they stick with him to bring them back up for more of the same or do they go for something else? Mm. Jack, you will have followed his career particularly closely as a player. Are you surprised that he's shown such a lack of adaptability when he's come up to the, the Premier League? I mean, I mean, blown their way through the Championship last season? No, I'm, I mean, I'm not that surprised they found it difficult because they this is company's first season managing the Premier League. Clearly, there's not an awful lot of Premier League experience in the playing squad either. They're trying to play a very different way from how they have played in the past at Burnley. I guess what what's really surprising to me from the outside, and this is as somebody who d- doesn't cover Burnley and doesn't, you know, don't kind of studiously watch all of their games, but what's surprising to me is how much backing company seems to have from the club in doing this. Because normally, the in a situation like this, if a team is looking like it's going to go down in their first season back in the Premier League, you would probably expect them to set the manager around Christmas and then get in a manager with a bit more experience, whether that's the kind of one of the old school firefighters who I know are sort of slightly out, outmoded perhaps, the kind of Warnock, Pulis, Allardyce, generation of managers, or one of the, you know, what I call the, the more sort of uh, international brigade of firefighters, the sort of Nuno, Carlos Carvalhal type manager. But instead, Burnley seemingly stuck with, with the company strategy. And maybe this is because they see this as the best way to get promoted back to the Premier League the following season. Which, although if that's true, it makes you wonder what's what's actually the point of being in the Premier League anyway if you don't seem to have much of an intention of making an impression on the division. And maybe they think they'll have a better chance of sticking around in two years' time. Although if that is true, that seems an incredibly far-sighted approach for Burnley to take. Like, Premier League clubs are not usually that far-sighted. So, honestly, I don't know what the strategic calculations are at Burnley, but it's certainly unusual for a team in this position to be operating this way. I wonder whether, like, if you were if you were a chairman or if you were part of the executive structure at Burnley, you look at the style of football versus what it was previously, and you look at potentially how younger, more technically capable players can develop within it and appreciate in value. Because actually, the one if you, if you were to criticise Sean Dyche's time at Burnley, 
um, which is really mean-spirited given what he managed to, how long he managed to keep them in the Premier League for, you'd say, well, how many players were you able to shift? How many players were you able to kind of use to fund the rejuvenation and a progression? Very few. So yes, they're probably going to go down. And I, I'm really just playing devil's advocate here, but it feels like company gives you a better chance of doing that um, with this style and the kind of a more of a long-term approach than if you were to bring in anyone from Jack's list, which is probably the old habit. I don't know, maybe I'm, I, I don't cover Burnley either, but then um, that would seem to be logical. That would also seem to be maybe more in keeping with a kind of modern trend within football, which is to kind of look three or four seasons down the line. If you're not, if you're not a, you know, a, a contender, if you're not going to win something every year, then I suppose you have to think like that in a way. Mm. Not getting much value for your season to get a turf more Perhaps this not. season. Well, though. yeah, and the fans may have the say because there were quite a lot of boosts today. Really? You know, They've in, taken five yeah. points and four of those were against Sheffield United and Luton. But also there were boos as to what they were trying to do. James Trafford was trying to play out from the back and not doing very well and they were getting loudly heckled. Um, so, yeah, that may, that may sway the owners' opinions. All right, well done. We've got around about five minutes of content out of Burnley Bournemouth there. If that doesn't get us nominated for an SJA award uh, next season, nothing will. We'll get to Saturday's action next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Hudson Adoy looks to clear. Liverpool win the ball back on the edge of the area. McAllister chips it back into the box. The header. Liverpool through Nunez. Incredible finish. Liverpool in the ninth minute of added time. Let's go to the world famous city ground. Title contenders ready. Relegation candidates, you will go absolutely crackers at my final whistle. Darwin Nunez off the bench to plunder a 99th minute winner to leave Forrest fuming after a fairly poor piece of refereeing by Paul Tierney, which led to what can only be described as scenes at full time, I think, Seb. Talk me through what happened and what should have happened and just, yeah, try and calm me down a bit. Well, I can't promise to calm you down, but what happened, play stopped for head injury in the penalty box with Forrest in the ascendancy, building a little bit of a head of steam. Uh, what would have been also another a good crossing opportunity. Game stops. There's also a VAR check for um, what was never going to be a penalty. I don't think I don't, don't think that's controversial at all. The game restarts. The game should restart with Forrest in possession because they had the ball when the game was stopped. Ultimately, didn't happen. Liverpool were given the free kick and the chance to exit. And from that whole series of events, which a lot of people have quite rightly said, um, 
Forrest should have defended better in those situations and it wasn't instantaneous. They didn't go from a long ball uh, from Kelleher to scoring the winning goal. But clearly there was a material impact on the game from the referee's decision, which was incorrect. And those are not your happy eyes, Matt Davis Adams. <laughs> like you're smiling, but there's, there's, there's fury and burning and unhappiness lurking behind your glasses. Why don't you talk us through what you felt happened on Saturday? I think my main issue with this, Tim, you can help me out here, because I think there's been a sort of solemn, dignified resignation to the way that Gary O'Neill has dealt with all the refereeing issues that Wolves have suffered this season. Mm. Whereas Forrest have gone down the banter club route of hiring Mark Klassenberg to be the mouthpiece <laughs> for it and have the owner chase the referee down the tunnel. So instead of getting sympathy, they're getting mocked. But actually, this is a pretty big mistake right, from Paul Tierney. Yeah, a, a huge mistake. I don't really know what's going through his mind, really, because it's quite clear that Forrest are on the attack with, with the ball. How, how has he not noticed and how has he forgotten that? He must have misremembered the way he stopped the game. He has to be, otherwise it's, there's just no other explanation, surely. But he's got communication with his assistants yeah, and that's true. two that's other true. people in Stockley Park who can surely say to him, sorry, old chap. Yeah, I agree. And then you've got this really interesting dynamic of Mark Clattenberg in the mix zone. I saw the pictures. After the game. Yeah. yeah. Giving interviews which have been aired. Who, who's asking for this? Who's, who in the world wants more me? Mark Clattenburg? Uh, me? me? <laughs> Do you I want gladiators, Jack? <laughs> no, I don't actually. So that's why I need more Mark Clattenburg. I think this is incredible. This is... Uh, so I, I hesitate to use this phrase, but I used it on Twitter last night. This is peak Barclays. Having Mark Clattenburg <laughs> working for a Premier League club. I mean, it's the kind of thing that... So Real Madrid and Barcelona, I think, have, have done this in the past. Like Real Madrid have a um, like a, re a really respected former referee in Spain who is now their referee liaison officer, basically, whose job it is is to... Um, got to choose my words carefully here. His, jo his job is to represent the club in discussions that Real Madrid will have with the Spanish referees body and to argue the case for Real Madrid on, on various points. But to have... And so I did I did always wonder, like, would a Premier League team do this? Would a Premier League team go and appoint someone like a Mike Dean uh, after they've retired from, from refereeing? Obviously, it's much more common that referees will go into the media instead. But for it to be Nottingham Forest and for it to be Mark Clattenburg is fantastic. I mean, it really, it really underlines something I've been thinking for a while, which is that this current iteration of Nottingham Forest have that they have the energy of a slightly chaotic Premier League team from about ten years ago. Like everything they do is very <laughs> QPR twenty eleven to twenty fifteen, uh, but on a grander scale. And I think this is this is the ultimate example of that. Like it's just a fantastic bit of Premier League plot twist, basically. What what does Mark Clattenburg do at Forest? Like, so what's what's involved in the consultancy? What is what kind of advice is he providing? Like, are we is he part of a training session where we're working out what is fine and not fine when defending set pieces? Is it what, what is it? Forest have been hard done by they think by quite a few decisions this season. So he he now tells them when they should be arguing oh, their I case see. and okay. going to PGMOL okay. to complain. I think that's part of it. So, so like, what's reasonable to be upset by versus what? is just unfortunate I think football. so I'd okay. love to know how much you've been paid yeah me too absolutely me too. love to I'd rather um, not <laughs> and as, as, as a gentle aside if one if one club this weekend needed a refereeing analyst it would be Orlando City in MLS who were playing into Miami and just hours before the kickoff somebody tweeted a picture of the referee who'd been chosen for that game uh, in an into Miami shirt all over Twitter so that's changed the ref just hours before Kickoff. So in that scenario, very useful. Very useful. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Well, look, Clattenberg should concentrate on his day job because Gauntlet should be one of the easier gladiator events to police, and it's become an absolute farce over the last few weeks. Uh, there are Liverpool fans screaming at their devices, Seb, particularly at me for the second week in a row. So we ought to give them some praise because it's been a mammoth week for them. I mean, they started with Joe Gomez in central midfield here, which caught my eye and they won the game anyway. It took them a while to do it. Forrest missed a load of chances but this is the kind of thing that teams who are contending for the league have to do and do. Then, but don't break. Maybe you're not playing very well. Maybe you don't have, well in Liverpool's case, you haven't got a whole host of really important first teamers couple on the bench. What's been lost, unfortunately in the controversy is just how good Alexis McAllister's ball is for Dominion's winner. That is... I know it looks simple, but on the edge of a congested penalty box, 97th, 98th minute, uh, ball on the half volley, 
perfect at the back post, time exquisitely for, for Nunez to stay on side. That is one of the balls of the season. If Liverpool go on to win a title, that's one of the moments of the year. Because also, um, as you know, Matt, like I, I thought Forrest for, for long periods of game were actually the better side, certainly had the better chances. The goalkeeper, what's really interesting about Kelleher is if you go back two or three months, he was seen as kind of a little bit of the gloss that come off the halo. Um, he'd had a few ropey games. He has been absolutely brilliant the last few weeks. And the Alanga chance, which actually had it, had it gone in, may have may not have counted, might have been slightly offside. It reminded me of a, a save that Joe Hart made at Everton years ago in the um, in the three-way title race that Jack mentioned earlier in the podcast, where it looks simple, but it's just a goalkeeper standing up, doing his job, a really, really, really important moment in the game. Because if you go behind at the city ground um, with so many younger, inexperienced players there, um, doesn't really matter that it's Jurgen Klopp's last season. Doesn't really matter that all of a sudden you've got an excuse for not winning because that's a pretty tricky place to to win. Um, so in many ways, not the very best in performance, but I was super impressed by Liverpool. Just their resiliency over the past few weeks has just been terrific. And they, you're going to hate this. They jump, don't jump across the table and, and knock me out. But I felt like they deserved their luck a little bit um, just because of what they're having to do with the group that they're having to do it right now. Would it be a concern, Jack, that it might not be sustainable to, to keep scoring these ridiculously late goals? Another team with it with an interesting run coming up, aren't they? City obviously next, but they've got the Merseyside derby on the horizon too. I guess Jurgen Klopp will be thinking late goals are fine whilst I've got half my team on the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, given the absences they've got, any way of winning the games that they can find is obviously hugely valuable, basically, and they will they will take any way that they can win for now. I mean, and also the fact is, like, firstly, there's not that many games left. And secondly, they have such kind of emotional momentum at the moment. Obviously, you know, the background being the fact that Jurgen Klopp's time at Liverpool is, is ticking to a close. So I'm, I don't know, I still, I know I said earlier that I thought City were probably my marginal favourites in my head, but the Liverpool story is so compelling that I, it's, there's certainly a big part of me that thinks they will end up, they will end up doing it, even though objectively, you know, City have far more quality in the, both in their first team and in their squad than Liverpool do at the moment. I've seen a few comparisons with, with Arsenal from a year ago when they were bagging these last-minute winners, you know, the 4-2 at Villa when they got two in stoppage time, the 3-2 against Bournemouth from 2-0 down. These was, they were sort of this time of year. The difference is Liverpool is, is the defence. Um, you know, they keep, they're keeping clean sheets and they know how to grind out results. And also, yeah, Arsenal were, to an extent, built on that emotional momentum that Jack mentions and Liverpool that suits them you know they're, they're well versed in that and yeah Liverpool's defence they've considered 25 in 27 they are sizably overperforming their XG against which is 33 and yeah I think 38% of their goals have come in the last 15 minutes which feels unsustainable but the, the longer it goes on all right, proper three-way title race. We're not going to extend it to four, it would seem, but Aston Villa are still very much in contention for Champions League qualification, if nothing else. Heartbreak at Kenilworth Road. File that under titles for daytime soaps that could replace doctors. Uh, in Bedfordshire, Aston Villa and his old club Everton, indebted to Dina after Luca's late winner, gave them victory against Ever Game Luton. Timmy, are you expecting Villa to qualify for the Champions League now? I mean, it's been a huge couple of weeks for them and today's result the Etihad certainly solidifies their position and they've got the uh, the most prolific goal involvement person <laughs> in the league, uh, Ollie Watkins, now ahead of Salah and Haaland. Um, yeah, it, it was a huge win. It felt huge with it being so late as well. Although if Mengi had stuck that header in in stoppage time, uh, I feel sorry for the guy. I don't know who Luton have got next, but I'm sure he's going to have an easier... Uh, 90 minutes than his last two against Haaland and Watkins but yeah Watkins was, was the star of the show again two excellent finishes poor defending for the for both of them in fact but he's so good at finding space and yeah rightly being talked about as a shoe-in for the England squad and you kind of start to think now how does Southgate fit him into the team really because mm. he's in that good form yeah that was going to be my question to you Jack you're going to be on the England beat this summer can you get Ollie Watkins and Harry Kane into the same England team it's got to be a consideration for Southgate hasn't it yeah I mean at the moment I'd probably be surprised just because I imagine that the the shape will be a 4-3-3 with Kane and then Saka and probably Foden um either side of him I mean Watkins could Watkins I mean Watkins probably could play in one of those wide roles but I don't Southgate's not a big fan of 
sort of shoehorning a player into his starting eleven based on club form alone. You know, he would want to see that they can be part of the eleven that he puts out on the pitch for a while before a tournament. So, personally, I don't really see it, although... I can understand the argument that he would deserve that based on his performances this season. I think he's got to be the most improved player in the Premier League over the last few years, really, Watkins. You know, I know he's been a good player for a while, but I don't think, you know, when he first he first started playing in the Premier League for Aston Villa, that people thought that he would be capable of being quite as brilliant as he has been all season. If you think he's now sort of solidified his place in the squad, there's going to be a couple of really, really good players that aren't going to be going now. Obviously, the squads are down, back down to 23 for this summer for the Euros. You've got to think... Ivan Tony might be vulnerable um, if he's if he's purely looking at three three of the, those three as central attackers. He probably wouldn't take all three. You look at people like obviously Madison, Cole Palmer having a great season, Jared Bowen having a season of his life. Um, obviously Saka and Foden are guaranteed. People like Anthony Gordon aren't going to get a look in here or Callum Wilson. Raheem Sterling, oh, that's an interesting one. Even yeah, though, I mean, you know, Grealish. Grealish. That's it. Grealish and Grealish and Rashford would, would be extremely vulnerable, I think, to even yeah. make the squad. <laughs> Amazing embarrassment of riches to get to the quarterfinals with. That's really interesting about Villa. Like, I, just to drag away from England, when Leon Bailey moved to Villa, I remember thinking he suited where they were at the time as a sort of, you know, they weren't really, they weren't a, a top four contender. And the knock on Bailey in Germany was always that he had these great high points, but would always fluctuate throughout a season. His consistency of the last few weeks, a few months even actually, and but partially it's to do with him staying fit. He hasn't really been disrupted by injury in the same way that he was uh, a year ago. He's playing with more confidence now than I think I've ever seen in his career, even back in, in, in Leverkusen. He never really, even within a, a relatively strong side who suited his game perfectly, very, very transitional, uh, defensively a weaker league. I don't think he was ever playing at the level that he was, uh, that he is now in Leverkusen in the Bundesliga. So it's really nice to see because a talented guy and... Um, you know, but but proving himself to be more than just uh, a couple of moments every six weeks, and it's um, Ollie Watkins clearly the headliner, no, no doubt about that. But barely been, yeah, fantastic to watch. Massive game next weekend then, as it's Villa against Spurs. Uh, therefore, said Villa could do without having to go to Amsterdam on Thursday for their Conference League tie against Ajax. Be interesting to see the average age of the eleven that Unai Emery picks for that one. He might go full clock. It's really difficult because if you if you go for a long period without European football and then you have a tie like that in knockout rounds, you've, you've got through the group stages, you're also playing in Ajax, in Amsterdam, sorry, which is, it's really hard to take that lightly. Um, and actually, Villa would look at that, you know, Emery would see that and say, this is a, a stuttering, underperforming Ajax side who are weak and vulnerable in certain areas. They have recovered from where they were at the beginning of the season, but they're by no means a vintage Ajax side. So very winnable. But then, yeah, you lean into the kind of the the Thursday-Sunday conundrum with a, a Spurs side who have a free week, which is really, that's a really tough thing for, for Villa to face, particularly given what they might achieve this season. But um, I think they'll go relatively full strength because it's hard not to. It's hard not to reward that group of players with the opportunity to play in that environment. I think it's, um, I, I don't think there's actually a right answer to this. And whatever happens, um, if Villa don't get a good result, you know, is going to be criticised for whatever team he puts out. But it's it's kind of the, the double-edged sword of European qualification for a team who who aren't used to it. What about Luton, Tim? Uh, no such worries for them of Thursday, Sunday. They've lost by the odd goal at home to West Ham, Spurs, Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, Man United. Might regret not picking up at least a couple of points in those five defeats in a row in league and cup but their fixture list looks a little bit kinder over the next few weeks they're staying in touch they obviously don't know what's going to happen with Everton and Forest but it's got to be demoralizing getting so close to getting a really notable result against a big team and, and continually coming up short yeah especially you know the manner that Villa don't tend to blow any leads and Luton don't tend to come from behind very often I did not see that comeback coming at all to be honest uh really spirited second half performance Barkley was Excellent again. Uh, they had to make a couple of changes, didn't they, early on to their team, which sort of disrupted formation-wise. And, um, yeah, the big thing for them is going to be, as you say, points deductions. It's ludicrous that, that it's that it's coming to this in early March and we've still got no idea what the how many sort of points you're supposed to, you know, obviously we don't, you don't know that anyway, but still the goalposts keep being moved, which feels really unfair. And this is not going to end on the last game of the season. You know, there are going to be legal challenges, I think, from any number of clubs and yeah at the moment they're four points behind with the game in hand but who knows what that'll be in a few weeks yeah back-to-back games against Palace and Forest next for them 
Right, Jack was on hand at the still rather prosaically named Tottenham Hotspur Stadium for a London derby that was anything but lacklustre as Spurs fought back from a goal down to maintain their status as the Premier League's comeback kings. This is a Spurs-heavy pod today. Uh, it's typical Spurs, wasn't it, Jack? I mean, struggle for a large part of the game, concede a goal and, and then come back. It's what they've been doing for a large part of the season. But Timo Werner managed to get himself a goal. Yeah, it was very similar to their recent home wins against Brentford and Brighton in the last few weeks in the sense that Spurs went behind and then needed this big dramatic second half comeback. So Postacoglu afterwards said he thought Tottenham played pretty well over the course of the 90 minutes. I Personally, I think a lot of people were not so impressed with the first half just because Tottenham only really created one very good chance, which, which Werner missed, despite having, I think, 83% possession in that first half. But maybe it was a small step in the right direction in terms of overall performance. They really shut Palace out of the game. Palace uh, didn't really create anything at all in open play and only scored from an excellent free kick, which we talked about at the top of the show. I still think there's a lot more to come from Tottenham. I still don't think they're playing anywhere near their best. But given the sort of wobbles they've had recently, I think it is, yeah, I think it is definitely a, sort of a good news story for them. How's Timo Werner going down with Spurs supporters because he's been pretty Timo Werner-ish thus far. Well, the, I mean, the the chance that he missed in the first half, I felt bad for him because you could just tell as he was running through that he didn't have the confidence to to take it early, which is exactly what's... I mean, if that had been Son or Kane, for example, last year, they would have hit the shot when they were, I don't know, somewhere near the edge of the 18-yard box. But Werner didn't look like he wanted to take it on. And so he kept he kept running and running and running, hoping, I think, that he was quick enough to get around Sam Johnson. And then by the time he finally took the shot, Johnson was in position to, to block it anyway. But that, is, that aside, his overall game was actually quite good. Like, he's... He's very good at kind of running at his right back. He causes teams to back off and panic a bit. He's had lots of good moments which haven't necessarily been goals. You know, he's had assists in recent games and good balls across from the left. So I think he absolutely deserved the goal that he got. I mean, when he converted Brennan Johnson's cross to make it one all. So hopefully that will, you know, inspire him with confidence. Then we'll see a slightly different Werner in front of goal. But we shouldn't forget the fact that, you know, he's not had... He's not been in good goal-scoring form for a while. You know, Seb will be able to speak this better than me, but he's not. it's not like he's been scoring a lot of goals since he went back to, to Leipzig from Chelsea. Um, but may, maybe that'll start to change now. He has got that goal, I'm not sure. He's a player, Seb, isn't he, who naturally invokes a lot of sympathy. I think a lot of that is just down to his face, but also he's obviously trying all the time and he wants to be the player that we think he can be. I guess it's not so important that he's not weighing in with much in terms of goals when Son is scoring or assisting 19 in, in 20 Premier League games and Brennan Johnson starting to, to find a bit of form as well. That's maybe covering for Werner a little bit. No, I think that's kind of fair, Matt. I, I think Werner... Werner has the, the misfortune of being cast in goal-scoring roles without actually being a natural goal-scorer. Like, I think that's certainly the tale of what happened to him at Chelsea. And at Spurs, he's at Spurs with the understanding, I guess, that he's a, he's a set of attributes that you can put into a situation and you can use him to exploit weaknesses. What you can't do is you... And this is true of Eby Leipzig. This is true of Spurs now. It was true of Chelsea you can't depend on his goals because he's just not consistent enough. He's also, he's not comfortable. Jack mentioned how he kind of approached the chance that he received, he, he, he was afforded in the first half. That's not a lack of confidence. That's just, I think that's who he is as a player like because he likes to lean on his pace. He likes to uh, exploit a kind of a, a sluggish back line or like a, a high-sitting defence. And he's not someone that's going to take chances in the way that Sonia Minna did at the end of that game. Um but then you have this wholehearted player who, I think it got mentioned on Match of the Day, actually, how he seems impervious to, to missing chances because it, it happens. He doesn't sulk. He just keeps coming and coming and coming. And it's, it's, it's working for Spurs in a way. And I think the story of Tottenham's season is getting through to the end of it, surviving some of the, the positional weaknesses, um, using the merits of some of these individual players, Werner, but like someone like Mickey van der Ven, who, by the way, looks like getting past him looks like you, you know, trying to run around a building. It's ridiculous. Um, but Werner's just part of that. And is he going to be part of the long-term strategy? Probably not. But he allows you to get out of little holes in games. And he has good movement. And he has moments where he exploits a fullback in a way which, which calls a centre-half across to double up on him. And these are all things which are valuable in, in Tottenham's context at the moment. And so I, 
I, th- I hear people saying it's, it's, it hasn't been much of a success, but there's no risk to this. It's just a lone move. And, and I think he came as advertised this time, which is obviously not what happened during his time at Chelsea. So I, and you, you, you want him to do well. He has this little face that you just think, yeah, <laughs> I don't know many other players like that, but he, he, seems, uh, he seems to inspire goodwill. Let's put it that way. He sure does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, loads more Spurs chat on the award-winning View from the Lane, the Tottenham podcast from The Athletic. Briefly, Tim, on Palace. Mm. Not a bad start for Oliver Glasner, really, is it? Because not many people expecting him to, to go to Tottenham and get anything. And he had the gimme against Burnley the week before. He just needs to try and sort out the away form. But they're going to stay up with something to spare. You would have thought so. 28 points already, 8 points clear of Luton. Although it's Luton they play next week, and then it's Forest, and then it's Bournemouth. So they just need to be a little bit careful the next couple of weeks that they pick up, I don't know, three or four points. But otherwise, yeah, this is classic Palace. You know, they they really, really struggle against teams that are better than them and they comfortably sort of beat the teams uh, at the bottom end of the table, which does bode well for the next couple of weeks. But yeah, crisis averted for now. Good one for fans of logic then, if you like Crystal Palace. Right, we will rattle through the rest of the Premier League action next. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D dot com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Totally Football Show, the Football Content Awards International Podcast of the Year. Right, listener, we want to hear from you. We're asking you to fill out a quick survey about you and your podcast habits. Just go to theathletic.com slash survey24. Three lucky entries will win £100 worth of Amazon vouchers. So whether you're a long-time listener or a new one, we want your feedback. More Forest Chat will feature highly, I would imagine. Uh, Go to theathletic.com slash survey24. That's theathletic.com slash survey24. Put the link in the description of this episode. A mixed week for Everton. They got some points back on Monday, then threw some away on Saturday. Conceded twice in stoppage time. A hammer blow for their survival hopes, inflicted by a sweet Suchek strike. 3-1 to West Ham here. Tim, am I out of order in saying that Sean Dyche maybe ought to be under a little bit of pressure? Um, I think he's a bit hamstrung by the by the players at his disposal. You know, if you've got Dominic Calvert-Lewin not scoring in 20 games and then you've got Beto, who I just knew wasn't going to score that penalty, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I know he took his header very well in the second half, but yeah, um, they just haven't got many match winners, really, apart from Decore, who they've really... Worst league run in nearly 30 years. That's quite a long time. Blimey. Yeah, that is... Yeah, th- th- they also came up against one of the best goalkeeping performances of the oh, entire season. Fantastic, yeah. Ariola was... was Crazily good, made a number of unbelievable saves. Uh, Everton's XG was two point eight eight. So yeah, this uh, this I think this was the boo derby. Whoever whoever <laughs> lost was going to be booing at full time. But yeah, um, it's. I still think Everton will grind their way to another uh, survival, as they always tend to do. But in terms of going forward, I mean, it's all going to be about how much money he's got to spend because there just isn't enough quality in that squad to take them much higher than where they are at the moment. And West Ham gnashing of teeth aside, nicely tucked in seventh. Seb, they've got a game against Freiburg coming up this weekend. What, what can they expect from that? 
I think they'll have too much for Freiburg. Um, they Freiburg played pretty well against Bayern uh, on Friday evening. Um, I don't think they've got the pace to trouble West Ham. Also, I think West Ham's physicality, uh, West Ham's size through the middle, um, which I think actually was kind of a little bit of a theme in this game against Everton. Like a lot of the strengths of Deutsch's football were kind of negated by what West Ham have in opposition. And I think Freiburg will be uh, a good side. Um, but Freiburg's, Freiburg's priority will always be, at the moment, Bundesliga survival because that's an underdog story in its own right. Like a, Because they've stayed in the, at that level for quite some time now, they've become part of the furniture, whereas that's not really true to their side, to the size of their club or what they've spent on players or... I mean, you could do a whole podcast on Christian Strike and and his managerial career, like really lovely man, really good, decent human being. Um, but I think they'll fall short here and, and West Ham will go through. Jack, we all seem to have awarded the, the Europa League to, to Liverpool already. Is there any danger that, that West Ham could, could go deepish in the tournament? It's funny, isn't it? If you look at their form, like they they hadn't won in eight games. Now they've won their last two in the league. And every time they get to a moment where it feels like the fans have a kind of losing patience with David Moyes, they that they managed to find a result. And um, that's not to say that these results are going to completely win win the fans back to Moyes, because I think I wonder whether they're, they're, there's kind of too much fatigue in that relationship now. But I certainly think that they managed to to find a bit of stability. I mean, it'll probably just be enough for a safe Premier League finish. But um, yeah, I'd imagine that going the distance in Europe is probably going to be beyond them. It does feel like the West Ham season, when it started on that kind of, that Tim Steiden versus David Moyes note, where there was supposedly conflict between new director of football, existing head coach, don't feel like we ever really moved beyond that. And there's this expectation that as soon as it turns bad, it turns bad terminally. And actually, like, West Ham not to be taken lightly. And there's a lot of really, really, really good footballers who are probably too good to be playing in that competition at West Ham. Um, it's just, a, it's, I can't think of another dynamic like this where you have West Ham in still seventh, still qualifying for the latter rounds of European competition, winning European competition and this tension with the fans. And yet I understand it. I understand the dissatisfaction and the kind of the, the desire to take that sort of evolutionary step forward into what West Ham want their club to be. But it's a, it's a very odd situation to characterise. Mm. But you've led me nicely on to our next game. Speaking of dissatisfied supporters, um, Tim, Maurizio Pochettino might have wanted some booze on his birthday, but not like that. Uh, was this the day that it turned terminally toxic for the Argentinian? You wouldn't think drawing away from home would do it, but I had the misfortune of watching this game. It was absolutely terrible for the vast majority of it. And Chelsea showing a bit of classic Chelsea, as we've come to expect in, in recent years, starting OK and then crumbling at the first sign of pressure. Uh, yeah, it reminded me of the uh, the old Trevor Francis quote, but it's my birthday. Why are you, you <laughs> booing me on my birthday? There's a lot of dissatisfaction at this game. Brentford boos as well, which Thomas Frank really took umbrage with uh, after the game. He, he stopped himself from swearing in the press conference. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that's that's pretty harsh on, on, on me too. Thomas Frank and me Brentford. Too. You know, they, he's had to put up with a lot this season, not, not, not least Ivan Tony missing the bulk of it and not being at his best, understandably, since he's come back in. But they um, totally sat off Chelsea in the first half, which I guess is where the frustration right. comes from when, you're, when you then concede the goal and you say, well, what are we going to do now? And it turns out that he had a perfectly good plan, which he was about to tell his players in the dressing room, and it all worked out fine. Yeah, it seemed like they were pretty passive in the, in the first half. And I guess everybody thinks that Chelsea are there for the taking, right? So... Um, but yeah, as 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 for Pochettino, oh, God knows where they go in the summer. You know, what what, what is it? Different, more players. You know, they need, need an overhaul of the squad. We need to sort of hear from him really as to what that problems actually are from his point of view and how he's going to fix them. Because I'm not hearing any of that at the moment. Mm. Yeah, looks a sticky wicket for him. Brentford, Seb, they just about have enough to stay up, won't they? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think also it's a it's a good season to have a down year. Um, given we've talked about Burnley, um, Sheffield United are playing on Monday night against Arsenal, which you probably wouldn't fancy them to get anything out of. Um, I'm full of admiration for Luton, whether they kind of like they have the resources to to kind of bridge that little gap with the teams above them, I don't know. But then maybe it's one of those situations where like if you look at the Brentford lineup now and you factor in things like losing Ben Mee for the rest of the season is really important figure within dressing room. Tim mentioned Ivan Tony not being there until um, late January, was it, when his ban expired? Um, you just do need to refresh squads every now and again. And there's so many players who were there from the moment that they stepped up into the Premier League that it might just be that time when you need to kind of have a little bit of a rethink and, and rework your squad dynamics. I don't know, but I 
I, w- I certainly wouldn't be worried about Brentford and I wouldn't be booing Thomas Frank at the moment. I'm not sure they're booing Thomas Frank, but the p- performance given kind of the trajectory of the club. Mm. Well, a point well earned for them, Desazi, with the, the equaliser to meant that it finished 2-2. Big week, Jack, for, for Newcastle and Eddie Howe in particular, it feels like. They made it through that, that FA Cup tie against Blackburn and then they beat Wolves 3-0 on Saturday. Their first home win of 2024. And, and how right to point afterwards that you can't go too long without winning a home game when, you, when you're Newcastle manager. A few mutterings, but he's quiet in those with this win, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my impression's always been, from the outside has always been that the um, the Newcastle fans do seem to be pretty loyal to Eddie Howe, despite the fact that you know from externally to the club, there's probably been a bit more questions about his his management of the team this season and how you know and how clearly they've struggled to replicate how good they were last season. I don't really know if they'll be able to to turn it on enough in the final third of the season to to get into the European positions, but maybe uh, an upturn could be enough to kind of preserve that good feeling around the club they had last year. You okay with this, Wolves-wise, Tim? It's been a terrific season. You've got loads of injuries. These things are going to happen. Yeah, do you know, the injury record's actually been really good this season. I saw a table the other day that said they've had the least number of days missing for for their squad this season. Um, with the Newcastle were well clear at the top of that particular table. But yeah, and, and they've needed that, to be honest, because they've got a very small squad. People will remember they had to sell most of it last summer. Um, but yeah, right now, um, Huang is out for six weeks. Uh, Cunha's still out for another couple of weeks, potentially. And Neto went off with a tight hamstring at half-time. So the prospects of them scoring a goal in the second half are pretty slim, really. They've got, they're throwing kids at it now. So they'll just hope that that ceases in time for the... FA Cup quarter-final in a couple of weeks, which is now what Wolves' season revolves around. And the dream draw, right? Don't say that much. One game we haven't touched on in the Premier League, finished Fulham 3, Brighton and Hove Albion nil at Craven Cottage. We spoke about the, the Europa League and European commitments, Seb. Uh, Brighton showing that here, making seven changes ahead of Roma in midweek. If you're a Brighton fan... Are you kind of saying, I'm not that fussed that we're ninth in the Premier League this season? A, because we're Brighton, but B, because we're trying to make a go of our first ever season in European competition. And, and that ought to be the priority. Yeah, because, you know, like I think over the years we've all become so accepting of the league taking priority and precedence over everything. And that you almost have a situation where you qualify for what can be really fun continental competitions. And then, in a sense, you you throw it so that you can preserve your 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 league form if you're a not smaller club but a club with fewer resources and Brian have got an injury list too um like the player they've probably missed the most I reckon and will do for some time is Jao Pedro um particularly in Europe he's been excellent in Europe but then if you're a Brighton fan you look at that Roma team and you look at kind of what they've experienced and suffered through this season Mourinho obviously going form very very indifferent um fans still pretty angry over Mourinho going um even though De Rossi's there now as in it's kind of um not quite interim because he's got sort of interesting bonuses attached to his to his sort of uh, temporary contract um but you would fancy knocking them over and that's kind of the point isn't it if you're a Brighton fan and you go all the way back to the Golden ground you're thinking okay so we get to knock out a club of that size in European competition. Surely, if anything, that is really what football should be about. I don't know if I'm out of step. Maybe maybe everything should be this joyless trudge towards the top seven and nothing else matters and trophies and all that kind of thing. But that's what I'd look forward to, the trips and the journeys and the nights and the evenings and all that kind of thing. And and I always think you need maybe a year or two to acclimatise to European competition to like build the expectation within your squad that some players are there to kind of provide, to churn a few minutes out. Um, and Brighton aren't, probably quite there yet so let's see I, I i really fancy them against roma though all right fulham fans might be uh, a little cross that we haven't focused on them much but we did last week and we'll just say that you know rodrigo munia's got his standard goal and adama Traore scored a goal tim he not, must have been staggered not only did he score he scored with with composure uh, he normally he sends those into the stands normally when he's got time <laughs> to think about it and he's running through um, yeah, Fulham are, Fulham are safe. You know, 35 points, won three out of four. It's without doubt the most underrated job of the season, I think, Marco Silva. Especially with, you know, when you look at last summer, losing Mitrovic, he yeah. apparently was nearly on the way himself. Palinia, Willie Wonty on, on deadline day. 
Um, They've moved away from Vinicius as well in the season. Mm. He was sort of starting. Yeah, great job. And there's that narrative last year about how actually they were kind of they were they were profiting over some unstable underlying numbers, and that hasn't really come to pass this year. It's really interesting. They, they, they've they've actually just become a very solid, good mid-table team over the over the course of like really just two years, um, which is yeah, it's fun to see. Nice to have Fulham back. Sure is. Uh, so that's the Premier League then with Sheffield United and Arsenal to come on Monday night. Totally Football Show European Edition will be back with Jimbo on Tuesday afternoon looking ahead to the Champions League last 16 second leg action. Kylian Mbappe subbed off by Luis Enrique again, went to sit with his mum in the stands as PSG drew 0-0 with Monaco. They'll be talking about that Real Madrid ruckus as well, no doubt, and what's going on in the Bundesliga with Leverkusen now 10 points clear of Bayern Munich. Also check out Full Time Europe, the Athletics Women's Football Podcast. It'll be out on Tuesday. North London Derby has sold out Emirates in the WSL on Sunday. Arsenal won it by a goal to nil. But that's going to do us for today's edition of the Totally Football Show. Many thanks to Jack, to Seb, to Tim, to producer Charlie and to Liam putting it all together for YouTube as well. Jimbo back on Tuesday. Regular Totally back on Thursday. Join us for those if you can. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.